Hello, New Zealand. My name is Paul Sinha, the Cineman from the Chase, and you're listening to the Keeping Up with NZ podcast. You're listening to the Keeping Up with NZ podcast with me, Ingrid Grenard, and this week I'm joined by a comedian, champion, quizzer, and chaser. It's the world's only gay Anglo-Bengali GP turned stand-up comedian, Mr. Paul Sinha. Hello. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, I'm actually feeling quite good night's sleep. Quite good. You were due to return to New Zealand for the International Comedy Festival last month, but sadly it was not to be. Um, So we were really, really keen to have a chat with you um, if we could. So I really appreciate you giving us the time. It's not a problem at all. Any any human contact is invaluable (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) So how is your lockdown? I don't even know where to start, to be perfectly honest with you. It's been a bizarre experience. You know, one minute you're happy on tour, you're touring your show that you're going to be taking to the New Zealand Comedy Festival. Then I stood on stage in a place called Peterborough and I told them, well, this is the last time I'm doing this show for a while because I knew what was coming. Mm. And then in the next in the next few days, you've lost every single gig you've got in your diary, all gone, vanished. Um, I'm a former doctor, so I've got, I know a lot of doctor friends, some of them very, very high up in the fight against uh, uh, COVID-19. And yeah. I said, what should I do? Uh, what's the best way, best, best way to keep my relatives safe? And they said that me and my husband Oliver should get out of London, and so we did. Okay. We went out of London, hired a little place in the, in the sticks to isolate, and two days later I was lying in bed, ill, feverish, with COVID nineteen. So we oh, got no. out just we got out just in time to stop me infecting my parents, who I would have seen, who I would have otherwise seen in the two days before lockdown. Well, luckily I didn't come to New Zealand, eh? How are you feeling? Like, how was the experience? Was it like a, a flu to you, or was it a lot worse? Oh no, it was it was, it was um, a bad flu, loss of taste and smell, just e- absolute exhaustion and inability to do anything. But for a couple of days, inability to stand up because I was short of breath. Oh, wow. And in a, in, a, in a set of farcical circumstances, which I will eventually try and make funny on stage, there was a day where I should have gone to hospital. But the health service rang me up and my incompetent fingers failed to answer my mobile phone correctly. And that was that. That was, you know, you only get one chance of being assessed during a pandemic. So I thought, oh, that's it. I've, I'm, I'm done for. Uh, and then the next thing I know, that afternoon, I start getting better. So it was just in time that I started. When I say start getting better, it's still another seven or ten days before I felt much better yeah so it's been it's been dramatic to be honest with you and for, for a number of reasons not least that i lost a close friend in the first few days of the lockdown to to the infection and we had the tabloids badgering my agent for comment while i'm lying in bed myself ill and and having my own fight so the first three weeks of lockdown were awful uh, and after that the slow recovery has been interesting um it's been an interesting human experience to just take stock of your life and try and work out what your priorities are what you want to do with the rest of your life there's nothing i don't think for anybody anything anything's ever going to be the same um it's 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 the biggest you know it's the biggest thing to happen to the world since the second world war and i don't think any of us are ever going to be the same when you and so you know suddenly the things that you thought were important don't even necessarily seem that important It's been a massive taking stock experience. So you've celebrated your 50th in lockdown as well, is that right? 
I did, yes. Was that a celebration? Did you manage to have a celebration? It was, actually. It was, it was um, I mean, let's be honest with you, a lot of our, a lot of our lives are now uh, virtual. Uh, and I decided, I had a plan. I had a plan. I was to invite a load of my friends. And every five to ten minutes, I'd randomly send them into a breakout room yeah. with people <laughs> they didn't necessarily know. Yeah. And do you know what? The plan worked. It was really good fun. Um, and, you know, I got really good feedback of, oh, it was really nice to meet people I didn't know and get to chat. Because at a real party, you're very selective about who you speak to. Mm-hmm. I wanted to take the choice away from people. Um, and I, it, it was good fun. And I managed to get the right, the right level of drunk, by which I mean I was happy and, and cheerful yeah, and it was it was, it was very. I mean, it, in many ways, more memorable than a real party. <laughs> when weird things happen in your life as a comedian, you think, "Well, I've got to make this funny eventually." Yeah, <laughs> you get something out yeah. of it. Well, um, with that sort of virtual party, you don't have any of the stress and none of the cleaning up. And like you said, people meeting people that they wouldn't have spoken to because yeah, people tend tend to stick to their own groups. Yes, yes, yes. Well, this is exactly what I wanted to put a. Uh, a sledgehammer through and forcibly mix the different groups. So around this time last year, you were in New Zealand. Did you have any expectations about what it would be like? It was it was such a wonderful trip in every way. I'd never done a, an overseas comedy tour, mm-hmm. and I was I wasn't entirely sure whether it was what I wanted. You get to a certain stage in your life where you go four weeks away from your home, your sister, your nephew, your niece, your mum, your dad. At your age, is that really what you want? And it turns out that, yes, it absolutely is. Because New Zealand's different because of the the reverence that the chase has in New Zealand is an extraordinary thing to experience. Yeah. And and so we never had to worry about ticket sales. How many sold-out shows did you do? Because that was last year with your debut to New Zealand because you were going to be think, returning. I think, I think they pretty much all sold out. Yeah. And it was, it, was ama- it was an amazing thing to experience, as I said. Um uh, but for me, what was really important is that people realise I'm not the chaser who does comedy. I'm a comedian who does the chase. Yes. I've been doing comedy, you know, a long, long, long time. I joined the chase in 2011. Five years previous, I was nominated for the best show at the Edinburgh Festival. Mm-hmm. Five years before that, I was doing uh, week, whole weekends at the Comedy Store. So I've, I've been around for donkey's years as a comedian. It's the quizzing that was new. Uh, in, two th- in, t- in 2009, I decided to take quizzing seriously, and one thing led to another. So you were talking about, obviously, going from comedy that you had quite a long career in, and then you went to be on The Chase. How did The Chase, obviously, like you said, The Chase is hugely popular over here. So how did it come about then? How did do you have to audition for that kind of thing? It came about because everyone knows everyone in quiz. So... When ITV said to Mark, Anne and Sean, they were looking for a fourth chaser um, and they had no choice in the matter. There was going to be a fourth chaser. Their first response was, damn, that's less money. And their, <laughs> second response, their second response was, well, if you do need someone, we know a stand-up comedian who is really good at quizzing. And so Mark sent me a message on Facebook going, I think you ought to know they're looking for fourth chaser. And I th- did want to know. Um, because I'd, I'd done well enough in quiz by that stage, I thought I could do it. Yeah. And there were auditions, and the auditions are really weird because they uh, they they, they uh, put up fake contestants, and but it's not in the studio, so it doesn't quite feel real. Mm. But eventually, they decided it was me they wanted, which was nice, and that was that really. That was twenty. That was the sp- the spring of twenty eleven. It, it, it 
can't possibly be nine years, but it, it is nine years. And um, I just saw that this month we're going to be treated to like the Chase XL with the Beat the Chasers show. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I haven't seen that yet. Well, it's bigger, bolder, brasher. It's supremely well edited so that the uh, the bits that didn't quite work never really never saw the light of day. And it's dramatic. <laughs> and there's, you know, if, it's, if, you do, if you don't feel it's your thing after one episode, hang on in there because there are some amazing finishes. And it's one chaser versus five. Uh, one, sorry, one contestant versus five chasers. Um, it sounds unfair, but obviously they have to do less than we do to win the money. Mm-hmm. That's how it, you know, that's how it's balanced out. And plenty of them win the money. And it's not always who you might expect is going to win the money because the the final game is only one minute each, and anything can happen. So it's 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 a totally different affair, and it was a massive hit over here because it was one of the lockdown hits because there's very little new TV being shown in Britain at the moment because of lockdown. But we thought we'd recorded these episodes in February, and so we were in pole position to take advantage of lockdown. In terms, and so we had record record viewing figures. I saw a clip on from Gogglebox of everyone watching it on there. Um, yes. Yeah, so of how dramatic it was, and that I was like, oh, this is one that we really have to get over here, so I'm really glad that we're getting it. Well, it, it, it's, it's a very, very, very different show to The Chase. All our roles are exactly the same. It's a very, very fast gameplay. Uh, as you'll see, it's very cleverly edited, so that people that they've they've managed to nail the moments where we look annoyed with our fellow chasers. Um, and it, for us, it was things we long forgotten because it was a split second instant reaction. Um, but they, it's been blown up out of all proportion in terms of its significance. <laughs> Do you? Um... Uh, I watched the Gogglebox chat, uh, episode. It was funny. That was good. Do you guys? Do you guys have like your own WhatsApp group, the Chasers? Several. Several. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, WhatsApp financial negotiation group, the WhatsApp general <laughs> knowledge group, the WhatsApp. Yeah, you know, we we we're very very tight and very very loyal to each other. Do you ever watch the Chase? Yes. When it's on um, TV. All the time. I, I have very little choice in the matter because my husband. Is is a quizzer as well. He's he, oh. like myself. He's he's ranked in the top ten, and he uses it as as training. So we've got. It's it's not actually me that puts the TV on at five p.m. It's him who's jot, who's jotting down the questions and the answers. <laughs> Although I will always make sure when I'm on that I watch it because you just learn stuff yeah. from watching yourself on telly. You just you just learn. So when I'm on, I'll always watch it. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Myself and Paul are about to discuss the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire scandal from 2001. Charles Ingram, a former army major, won the jackpot prize of a million pounds. But later, through a criminal trial, him and his wife were convicted of cheating their way to the top prize. This was later made into a play and then a TV dramatisation, which was broadcast in Britain during lockdown. Um, Did you watch that quiz dramatisation of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yes. What did you think of that? I don't think there's any serious quizzer I know who thinks that the Ingrams didn't cheat. Mm-hmm. I think there are two questions. Did they cheat and did they cheat legally? By which I mean, was there enough of a case against them to say they cheated? Mm. And I think that those are two different answers. Most quizzers I know know that their pattern of behaviour is unheard of and, un- and unexplained in the history of quiz. And therefore, the instinct is to say, well, they must have cheated. 
However, was it ever proved that they cheated? I think that's a very different question. I mean, in the programme, it's a dramatisation. Um, and it was done, I think it was a play before, so they kind of had yeah, those three Yeah, I saw the play, acts. actually. Yeah, I so saw I... the play in his London incarnation. And I don't, I don't think they, the idea that the Ingrams did what they did, driven by the need to entertain the nation, is a remotely convincing argument. <laughs> but at the same time, did anybody produce the definitive piece of evidence that says that they cheated? I'm not sure that's true either. Yeah. But yeah. but when you're in quizzing as long as we, most people I know are, you just know when someone's cheating. Mm. There's some there's just something about it where it's just not the human brain normally works in explicable ways, not inexplicable ways. Um and you just know and that's the thing with the Ingrams. There's no way that a family that a, a married couple that's previously settled for 32,000 would have taken those ludicrous risks hmm. to, get, to get to a million. Everyone else who won on a million were well were, were well known for being really good at general knowledge. Hmm. Everyone else. And do, um, have you done any other TV quizzes? Like, did you ever want to do Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or any of those ones? Do you know what? I, I, I was a deeply lazy man in my 20s and 30s <laughs> and never really got around to applying for stuff. Nowadays, because you can all be done on email, yeah. I'd apply for everything if I could. I can't because of my ITV contract. But back in the day, you had to fill out a form, put it in an envelope, stick a stamp on, put it in a post box. I was just too lazy to do any of that. Mm. Uh, and so the answer is, no, I spent my 90s <laughs> wasting away when I could have made a load of money on, on quiz shows. Well, in that um, programme, they showed that her brother you know, had this crazy obsessive room where he was kind of trying to work through the, the fastest finger first bit and how you yeah. get through and doing all that kind of stuff. So um, obviously, even if you did apply, it's pretty difficult to, to get well, in I've as well. Well, I've got two very, very good friends who would have won loads and loads of money if they got on but didn't win their faster finger first on three separate occasions. Yeah. And so it, there's just no way of telling. Yeah. I came into quizzing as someone who hadn't done much on the telly so how did you get yeah. like how did you get in because I know obviously 2019 was a really big year for you professionally and and personally and um, and you did win the British quizzing championship and yeah. in September and um, so how do you get to like how does that even work what's it like the British quiz championships is is um 240 questions whoever gets the most wins are won by one point um it's the sort of thing that it's possible to win if you have a good day especially because the best quizzes in the country of whom I'm... I don't think I'm quite at the absolute A-list. I'm just bubbling under. Uh, but the best quizzes in the country aren't necessarily as good at entertainment as I am. If you get a run of hard entertainment questions that you know the answer to, and you happen to know the answer to the history and art questions that they thought they would have on you, then suddenly weird things can happen. This is the culmination of a lot of hard work. Mm. I work every day. I do quizzes every day. I read new stuff. I learn stuff every day. And um, there was a sequence of events last year where I came back from New Zealand and discovered that I had Parkinson's. Uh, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And from that very moment, I targeted the British Championships in September as possibly my last chance to win major silverware. Uh, and so me and Oliver, my husband, we went on an early honeymoon. We got married in December, went on a honeymoon to Berlin in August. And we did some sightseeing during the day. We had dinner somewhere nice in the evening, 
But other than that, we just sat in bed and went through British quiz questions again and again and again. Yeah. Because I've never I've never prepared more for anything than I prepared for this British quiz championship. I've never never. And it worked. Because you had the diagnosis, did you think did you need something to focus on or was it that you thought this is the only time I'm gonna do it or what was driving it? What was driving it was just well, for a start missing the world championships in June, which I hadn't missed since 2009, because I was having brain scans that morning, so I couldn't go, uh, meant that I, basically the World Championships is all international quiz, all international facts, and the British Quiz Championships is 95% British facts. So it's two completely different syllabuses. So I was able to just shut down one part of my brain and focus on the other part of my brain. Uh, and um, I, what, what drove me really was, this is probably my last chance to mingle with the best because for all I know, I'm going to spend the next few years taking this, this experiment with medication, doing this, doing that. Who knows where my brain's going to go? Actually, my, it's, been a, it's been a year almost this week since my diagnosis. Mm. Um, if anything, my brain's got better because I've been on medication that's helped. So if anything, the, uh, my, my, my quizzing has got better, not worse. But just... I will always have that one glorious day where everything went right. And not, I've not told many people this, but there's a weird moment with about 20 minutes to go of the, of the quiz where I just start crying because I realise it's my day. I'm looking at the question. I'm looking at the questions and I'm going, I've waited 10 years for this. I didn't necessarily think I was going to win. And in the end, I only won by one point. But I realised that I was having that day that every quizzer dreams of, where the things you learn are coming in. Oh, how amazing! Um, and also after you know after that diagnosis and sort of the, the roller coaster of ups and downs yeah. that you've had, I, mean, I can I mean, imagine. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, the two two or three best quizzes in the world, sorry, in the Britain, are operating at a level that I'll never quite be able to match. So you need to have a day like that to beat them. Yeah, the and stars I'm really, aligned. Really, uh, and I'm really, really grateful that that day, that day came at just at just the right time, just in time. Were you doing comedy from your university days? Were you doing quizzing from like how is it all kind of lined up? Well, it, it's 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 not really a sort of uh, it's not really a one led to another and then another led to another situation. I was a school quizzer. Um, I was a quiz machine emptier in in pubs. Uh, in at medical school, I played. I represented my school at general knowledge, my medical school at general knowledge. Then you become a doctor, and real life takes over, mm. and you just haven't got time to take it seriously. And to to be perfectly honest with you, although I was cleaning out quiz machines and this, that, and that, I wasn't even that good compared to the people that I know now. Um, but I I I was really only an occasional pub quizzer by the time. Uh, the late noughties came around and I just decided I wanted to take once I'd given up medicine there was I had more time on my hands and I wanted to do something with that time and that something was to revisit the my my teenage love of, of quizzing and try and get good did some internet research found a few websites found out there's something called a quiz league of London I went to the quiz league of London for the first time because my mate stood me up for dinner on a Tuesday evening, and I thought, well, that's, I'm not, I'm not going to let 
my mates ruined my evening. I'm going to do something with my life. And so I turned up to this random pub in London to find some random people I'd never met. There were about 70 players from the Quiz League of London at my, mar- at my wedding 11 years later. That's how big it is in my life. I've had a really weird life. And if there is a sort of motto or, or a uh, thing go through, it's just take a chance. See, see where it leads you. If you're interested in something, we've never been in a better position for people to find people who share your interest hmm. because the internet, the internet is an encyclopedia of the universe. You know, if, if your thing is you want to play poker, but only against 65 year old lesbians, you'll find a group for 65 year old lesbians who like poker. I mean, it, it's, it's all there. The world has never given you more opportunity not to be lonely. Hmm. Uh, and I think it's important to just take a few chances in life. I speak as someone that gave up medicine to pursue a dream and now could be making money, now in a situation where I could be making money as a doctor, but I can't because I gave up being a doctor. <laughs> um, so it's all kind of backfired at the moment. But, you know, that, that's life, isn't it? I'm Paul Sinha and you're listening to the Keeping Up With NZ podcast. So what about comedy? Who were your heroes? Did anyone spark your love of comedy specifically or did you have a strong desire to just be on stage? Half one, half another. It was never really a desire to be on stage. It was a desire to be... There wasn't the stage pops. That's the most terrifying part of it all. It was the desire to hear your jokes, have your jokes being heard. And for me, the only opportunity for that was to get on stage and tell them yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what I really like doing, is writing jokes and talking about myself and trying to be clever with the jokes and trying to make people laugh. It's Even, even at school, where I was the quiet and not especially popular kid, I'd still be writing good jokes. And who did you, uh, who did you watch or listen to when you were growing up, comedian-wise? Ben Elton was the big one. Uh, I'm of that age where Ben Elton came out of the blue and just stood on stage and just talked about anything he liked. And it was amazing to watch. And not least because I, I was very left-leaning in my political views. Uh, but when I was a medical student, I went to lots of comedy clubs and just laughed my head off relentlessly. And eventually you just think, oh, come on, Paul, just do it. Don't sit around with with all these jokes that you've written and do nothing with them. Uh, And so I did, and I just hung on on in there for quite a long time. I was a junior junior doctor for the first four years of my comedy, in inverted commas, career, because it wasn't really a career then. Uh, And that enabled me to just take it slowly, because I I had no financial need to do comedy just a need, an, an emotional need to do it. And I think that helped, that I didn't rush things. But it took me a long time, if I'm being honest with you, to get good at it, because I just wasn't doing enough of it. But 2006, uh, my first gig was 1995, and 2006, which was the year after I came out to my dad, and that's not a coincidence, 2006, um, I did a show at the Edinburgh Festival that was nominated for the best show, and that's really the start of everything. What, um, what was the title of the show? It was called Saint or Sinha. See what I did there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it really was the big show about who I am and what I am and where I am, etc., etc., etc. That used me coming out to my dad as the big dramatic, the big dramatic story of the show. And I, I knew what I was doing in the sense that when I went to Edinburgh that year, I knew there hadn't been any major Asian comedians make an impact at the Edinburgh Festival. And it was a good year to go. And everything kind of sprung from there. That was what lifted me lifted me up the ladder. And people suddenly, suddenly I was getting offers 
of all sorts. And did your and dad everything. go to that show? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> My dad would have been 65 at the time. Who takes a 65-year-old to stand-up comedy? No, not, not a hope. He does, I mean, they, they, they've seen me, don't get me wrong. But they've never, my mum and dad have seen me, but they've never understood any of my jokes. And the stress of the risk of a bad gig in front of your parents, mm. I mean, who, who, who gets out of that situation with any dignity whatsoever? So I, I wouldn't want to put them through that stress. They saw me once at the Palladium, and you can't not take your parents to the Palladium. If you've got a gig at the Palladium, you are taking your parents to the Palladium. But that was it, really. Because, you know, it's, it's not their thing and it's not going to suddenly be their thing just because their son's doing it. They get to see me on the chase and that's fine. Yeah. And, and I have a friend whose wife won't go to watch live comedy because of, you know, anxiety around. I don't blame her. Because she can't cope with what if she doesn't find it funny. Um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like I don't know how to act when um, I've never had that problem. I've always wanted yeah. to go watch live comedy and... I've been when it's been hilarious. I've been when it's not been hilarious. And either way, I've always enjoyed it and appreciated it as an art form because I honestly think it is the most terrifying. <laughs> I can't think of anything more terrifying. It's interesting people say that. But my version of the truth is everything's terrifying until you've done it quite a few times. Mm. I use the analogy of the pilot who has to land a plane and he's got 300 people whose lives literally depend on what he does. And he knows what he's doing, and it doesn't stress him at all. Uh, and it, for him, it's a routine. Uh, and comedy's not quite like that, and it can never be truly routine. But then for a pilot, it's never truly routine. There's always the unexpected. But it is, it is that in terms of terror. I'm not scared when I'm on stage now. I used to be. I used to get through it by just saying to yourself, well, no one, no one forced you to be here. This was, this was your choice. So <laughs> if, if, if you've chosen to be a comedian, embrace it and enjoy every minute. And once I once I rationalised that, I stopped getting scared. And how has your uh, material changed from what you would have started out doing to? Oh, what I stood out started out there was awful. Um, to be perfectly honest with you, absolutely, absolutely awful. Just uh, well, occasionally peppered with decent. It was one line of bang, one line of bang, one line of bang, but it was told from the perspective of a gay comedian who wanted everybody to know he was a gay comedian by telling the worst gay shocking jokes possible uh and it, what it meant was that sometimes the audience would come would be on your wavelength and find you hilarious and sometimes they'd metaphorically chase you out of the room with pitchforks uh the, the, uh, there was very little in between i either i either i either stormed a gig or died horrible deaths at gigs it seems for the first two or three years um and then i just slowly 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 developed my style to be more what I call storytelling with jokes, for which I mean it's... it's And I've seen reviews that sometimes miss that joke bit, and it's like, my stories aren't just stories. They've got really, really, really well-written... They've got really, really well-written jokes in them. Uh, just because they don't start, a man walks into a bar. And the shame is that the, the show that I got, that I was taking to New Zealand, was meant to be taken to New Zealand this year, is, in my opinion, the best show I've ever written. Mm-hmm. Highest density of jokes, a real story to tell, including my time in New Zealand and realising that I probably had... That's the thing, is last year I was having the time of my life whilst getting a worse and worse limp uh, and realising that I desperately, desperately needed to go home 
and get a diagnosis. Did you know when you were in New Zealand then? or I'd um, been referred to a neurologist. I, I hadn't seen a neurologist. Uh, that was just before I went to New Zealand. Did you know that's what was a probable or did you literally... Well, it, all, it, it, all, it all happened rather quickly last year. Uh, in the sense that in January, I'd had a bad shoulder and in January last year I'd had an operation on the shoulder. And then it was the physio that I was seeing post-operatively in about March, April that said, I'm starting to suspect there might be a reason other than your shoulder as to why your shoulder's not getting any better. Hmm. Uh, but we just had enough time to get a referral to, uh, my, my, to my GP to, for a neurologist uh, before we um, had to go to New Zealand. And it was only about three weeks before I went to New Zealand that I genuinely thought there's nothing wrong with me. Mm. But about halfway through New Zealand, it was obvious there was something wrong with me. Um, there was this, there was a steady there was a steady worsening, um, but, but uh, and um, it was it was it was a, sort of a very weird and dissonant thing to go through, to be having both the greatest and the worst time of your life at the same time because you take the Parkinson's away and my month in New Zealand was the greatest month I've ever had I mean it was just so much fun uh, so enjoyable from a comedic from a social from a drinking from a dining from a performing for the fr the friendliness the being treated like because I, I, I joke in Britain about being a Z-list celebrity and people don't say no you're not they kind of agree with you and in New Zealand, I'm A-list. I'm proper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm proper. And I, I can't do that self-deprecation. Not when, not when somebody in a food market is giving me a dinner for free or, or people are gathering around to take selfies at a Chinese restaurant or whatever. Well, so surely, the chase is, it must be the biggest daytime. It is, but it's there's like... six of us. And Bradley's is the most famous of us by far. Mm. So if you divide out the fame... <laughs> uh, you get a percentage... I get a percentage, <laughs> uh, and um, I think Bradley is bigger. Bigger. The opposite is true of Bradley. I think when New Zealanders watch the show, they see the chasers and Bradley together. Mm. When the Brits watch the show, they see Bradley conducting the chasers. It's a slightly different thing. Yeah, because Bradley, right. all, because I think Bradley was always really, really famous before the chase started in Britain. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're uh, right. So I think the status of the individual chasers, and this seems to be confirmed by trips that Sean and Anne have both made to New Zealand, is is bigger than the status of the individual chasers in Britain. It's not a complaint. I'm not bitter. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there are there are a lot of times, particularly when shopping locally, that you're really, really glad not to be recognised. Yeah. Uh, in my ten weeks of isolation, not a single human being has looked at me in the supermarkets perusing the fruit and veg and thought, that's the chaser. Not one. And it's great. It's, 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 it's a really nice place to be. Yeah. So on the podcast, I often ask people a couple of sort of Kiwi connection questions. And hopefully because you were here last year, you managed to check out some local Kiwi talent. And I wondered if you had any sort of faves that you saw during the festival last year of local New Zealand comedians. James Nokisay was my favourite. Oh, Yes. Yeah, we 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 very much. Knocking James Nokisa, yeah. yeah, really, really good. Really liked his stuff. Very intelligent, very, very charismatic. Yeah. James Nokisa and Corey Enrique, 
were the two that I really, really enjoyed because they were they they were out they were out there. Oh, and Reese Matheson as well. I think Reese is on the telly uh, on a on a uh, topical news show. To the two Matthewsons, Eli the the gay one and James the definitely uh, Reese the definitely not gay one. Really enjoyed really enjoyed their stuff as well. Um, Ollie, my husband, saw everybody because that's he's so obsessed, and he'd be able to give you a more informed opinion. Whereas when I'm working with them, I'm from backstage, not necessarily seeing them, or or I'm drinking with them after shows. But James was James was my favourite. Yeah, James won the Fred Award. So the Billy T is for the comedians that haven't been around as long, yeah. and then the Fred Award is for the more established ones. Because um, they also do a raw comedy quest, so for new comedians, and then you go Billy T, and then you go Fred Award. So there's kind of like a tiered progression of award giving at each of the the comedy festivals. You also mentioned in New Zealand the food. Did you have any favourites? Uh, there's a Cuban tapas bar in Wellington. That's probably the best restaurant I've ever been to in my life. And of course, I won't remember it. So let me look it up for you. Havana Bar. Havana Bar in Wellington. Yeah, I honestly think it's possibly the best restaurant I've ever been to in my life. So thank you so much for sharing everything about your um, your lockdown. And I'm so sorry to hear that you actually were unwell. Well, I'm, I'm certainly very much on the mend. Uh, I can feel that when I go for my walks that um, I'm not all there yet. I'm a little bit short of breath when I get back. But it seems to be that I'm very much on the way back. Oh, I'm glad to hear it because I, um, I wasn't expecting you to say that actually when you said I thought you were going to say, oh, I've been a bit bored. The first two weeks of lockdown were me fighting for my life while a friend of mine lost his life. That was and the tabloids pestering my agent. This will all come out on stage eventually and it will all be funny. But that was uh, the first two two weeks of my of, of my lockdown. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your friend as well. It's um, it's truly a hideous thing that's happening at the moment and affecting so many people. Mm-hmm. And we are all quite frightened, so, um, you know, all the best to you and yours, because it's just Thank you. It's a horrible time. And the UK um, is having a very different experience to what we're having over here. Well, quite clearly. and you can't, you can't, you know, I mean, the, the, the adoration of Jacinda in, in the UK is enormous. It's, it, she's in such stark contrast to what we expect from, politi- from politicians now. Um, and that you know that that's the other thing is to go to New Zealand, is to go and visit a country whose people are pretty damn proud of their country, yeah. and I like that. You know, you know what I said about about COVID nineteen totally changing your perspective on life. I, you know, I since the diagnosis of Parkinson's last year, I've done nothing but see my life through the prism of Parkinson's. I don't think about it at all now. And it, it, I, I take my medication in the morning. I get on with my life, because at the moment, making sure that my friends and family are safe is far more important than anything. And suddenly, the Parkinson's just doesn't seem such a big thing. Do you think there's a bit and of case, a, a, a grieving that happens when you get a diagnosis like that, and then you can kind of, or is it the the actual COVID thing that's been such a big thing that's something that's bigger than you? I suppose with the pandemic, yeah. that's made you go actually. But then I was self-expressing through comedy when it came to Parkinson's. It's it's a very Im- emotional and big, big Im- and emotional show. And having that self-expression taken away from me because I'm no longer doing live stand-up comedy for the moment uh, just meant that I could focus on other things. 
Yeah, and I guess it's all consuming when you're in a show, especially like you say, yes, if you're, yeah. you're you're that kind of comedian where you are going to be sharing all those personal yeah. details that it kind of draws you in, all encompassing. What's more, uh, what's more, I've written a song for the gala, and there's every chance that song will never be heard unless I'm at a gala again. I'd actually written a song for the gala. Oh, I hope you can come again. It would be great, but we'll we'll have to see what happens in the world because <laughs> at yeah, the moment, who the hell knows what's going to happen. Down the line. Well, it turned out to be very much the right decision. It looks like I would have brought COVID. I would. I, I mean, well, there's no way I could. You know, there's no way I could have gone. You wouldn't have been so popular, of... would you? If you? Yeah, it's very true. Oh, it's taken a dark turn. Yeah, <laughs> it's difficult uh, not to be at the moment. If I have a message oh. for New Zealand, I'll see you as soon as I possibly can. You're an amazing country. Support live stand-up comedy where you can. New Zealand Comedy Festival with people like Scott Blanks and classic and are doing an amazing job uh bringing entertainment to your country and uh i really hope to be back as soon as i can and you'll be pleased to hear the classic has been open the last two weekends so i hear yeah i, I keep tabs on the situation and it's great news it's exactly what the country needs at the moment and i'm sure all the comedians that have been locked in their houses expecting them to come out strong <laughs> yeah thank you so much Paul Sinner for joining me for a chat on the Keeping Up the Dead no, podcast no today. It's been really great to have a chat and thank you for sharing so much and being so personal with what's been going on for you. No worries at all. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, take care. Thank you very much, Ingrid. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.